This episode of Untold, it's with Showtune Shane Jameson. A dynamic and full of life character, Shane left Australia post-university and made his way to Jebel Ali Resort, which having opened in 1981, is one of Dubai's original and iconic resorts. He thought he was gonna be paid $1,000 a month. It turned out he was only gonna get 1,000 dirhams a month, which was enough for a few meals and a couple of visits to the cinema. Nonetheless, Shane really enjoyed the experience and moved into a proactive sales role and developed a very successful career, leaving only for IHG, where he spent time in Doha, Mauritius, before repositioning a Renaissance property in the Deira part of Dubai. Then Jumeirah Group came calling. Jumeirah, the Dubai powerhouse group of iconic hotels and resorts, wanted Shane initially to help open Al Nasim, the fourth part of the Madinat Jumeirah complex. Following that, he was promoted into a role which saw him selling the full portfolio to leisure agents all around the world. This part of Shane's story is incredibly interesting as he talks about his encounters with celebrities and at some of the world's most prestigious events and uh, parties. Finally, Shane moved into Asia, moving back to IHG and responsible for opening the Kimpton in Bangkok. Shane successfully positioned and opened the property and has now been given an elevated role responsible for IHG's properties in Thailand. Enjoy Untold with Showtune Shane Jameson. And I ain't got nothing to say. I check my look in the mirror. I go to bed feeling the same way. Ain't nothing retire. And I'm just tired and bone myself. Baby, baby, I could use just a little help. You can't start a fire. You can't start a fire without a spark. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Shane, growing up in country Victoria, did you in your teenage years always aspire to work in travel? And if so, what were some of the catalysts for this? I think for me, mate, uh, international travel, entertainment industry, these kind of things, it's, it's all synonymous. So from, from quite a young age, even sort of pre-teen, I, I wanted that. I wanted to see the world. I think my first international trip was to the UK in, uh, in 96. So I remember getting over there and going, oh my goodness, what a sensational England. And I, I say England, I went to Holland as well. And just thinking, this is just sensational. You know, 16 years of age, traveling with my nana. And, uh, and, and you know, actually we're on a, a cemetery tour uh, of doing some family tree stuff, not exactly rollicking stuff, but it, it just gave me a real uh, sort of sense of, you know, international airports, transiting through KL early days, um, you know, getting the runs in KL on the way back, you know, the, these kind of things, you know, back in the day. And then, it sort of came back and it was, well, I'll do a commerce degree, but then that was very short lived. And then, so there was sort of a natural gravitation into wanting just to get out and rediscover the world, see, see how everyone does it slightly differently and in, in some cases very differently. So I think it was always there, but my grandmother, she was probably the, the real pillar of that sort of, yeah, great lady, Scrabble champion, great lady. And 
did was was she originally from the UK? So was that who, yeah. like, the family that you went to visit? Yeah, she was, mate. They uh, they were on those twenty pound tickets that came out, and they uh, they landed in in stunning Adelaide. Uh, and, and I say that because I, I, I do get a bit of a love-hate relationship with South Australia, but for all intents and purposes, it's, it's, it's close to my heart. But so on those 20 pound tickets, I think they were like six week boat trips and uh, the whole family moved out. So it was like Frio, South Australia, and then they ended up in Victoria in uh, Warrandyte and Ringwood. So that was my dad's family. So yeah, she, she was constantly just very well-traveled. Um, she was, you know, early days through China when she could, all through Southeast Asia, she loved travel. Like she was just constantly on planes. And then she paid for me once. So my first, she's like, well, we can go to China or we can go to England. Ironically, I'm married all the way from China much later. But at that time we, uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to come with you to England. And that was, you know, Littlewood's two pound meals and Debenham. She, she, was, she was paranoid of eating in the streets of London. No idea why, she, she, she rest in peace, but she'd hate to see me now in London. But, you know, she wouldn't let me eat any street foods. There was no slice of pizza in Oxford. There was nothing uh, but Littlewoods and Debenham, scampion chips or, you know, sausages and chips or something. So that was that was my introduction to international travel, but it was a banger, mate. It was excellent. That, that was with the era where the British food didn't have so many Michelin stars or... <laughs> Gordon Ramsay. There was no Gordon. Jamie Oliver. There was no Ramsay. There was no Jason Atherton. These were these were young whippersnappers, mate. It was uh, yeah, and, and definitely we wouldn't have been eating there. It was cod and chips, and I remember it being the most awful. Very proud Australian fish and chip boy here, but it was the most awful fish and chips ever had in Ilford, Essex. I just remember going, oh my god, this this cannot be a worldwide revelation. But uh, years later, I've come to appreciate some fish and chips down in uh, Cornwell and up in uh, in Newcastle. Fantastic. And your nan obviously was very influential. So did, did that then follow on the university degree you said in commerce, but was, was I that started, yeah. That, yeah. That was short-lived, mate. I, I was atrocious with numbers, even to this day. I mean, I, I, I often tell my team now, I'm like, look, just either give me the calculator, you have to add it up for you. Because in my head, I'm just, I'm a words guy. So I've got the words, I'm a storyteller. Uh, but God, with numbers, I'm terrible. But uh, so I started doing the commerce degree and found Sudoku more interesting than accounting. Uh, bluffed my way through a couple of courses. And that's that's very being brutally honest. I figured this is an honesty session. And uh, and then got to a point that I bluffed so hard that the uh, the was and it was management. It was something very, very pedestrian. And I failed uh, this sort of really key exam. And I was like, what's going on here? And I went to the teacher. And he's like, do you think you think taking a, taking a piss, mate? And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, you, you really are. He's like, I can tell you wrote this yesterday. And true as it was, I did write it the day before. I tried to apply. Uh, at that point, it was uh, like a West Coast Eagles football strategy uh, to, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. You know, some some ridiculous thought that I had to just whip this out. It was rubbish. It was complete rubbish and failed it. So then I said, I'm too good for this. I'm going to go to hospitality school. And that, that's exactly what I did. So I pulled the pin on the commerce degree and joined... Uh, the RMIT undergrad for a Bachelor of Applied Science. And then that was that was the, the world is your oyster. That was the eye-opener that brought me right into central Melbourne, um, seeing such a, I mean, the international students, the scene was just, I'd, I'd never, living in Geelong, we're multicultural, but we're, we're still country Victoria in a way. So once you get to Melbourne, you see, you see everything. Yes, people are walking on streets, there's trams, there's, Korean food. I remember my first Korean barbecue going, this is blowing my mind, you know, and 
and then rehashing that years later in Seoul. So it was definitely I had to kick up the ass to get out of the uh, to get out of the commerce degree and then move move into that hospitality management sort of you know tourism degree, which was yeah, which is the best thing I ever did, best decision I ever made. William Anglis, then to RMIT. Excellent. So so for people that aren't so familiar from Australia, how far is it from Geelong to Melbourne? How big was that? Sure. Uh, you're talking about an hour and 10 minutes. So I used to, I, I was working in a, a coffee store. It was a Hudson's coffee. I don't know if that's still PC. They might have shut down, but it was right under the Melbourne Stock Exchange building. So I'd get up at 4.30 to get on the first train at 5.30, be in for sort of just before 6.45. And then I'd be making the first coffees for the seven o'clock arrivals and people shaking, had the, had the coffee shakes by nine o'clock. And if the stocks were down, if things were crashing, there'd be some, some pretty torrid looking uh, brokers in that building. So yeah, it's a, a, about, it's about nine, yeah, call it, call it an hour and 20 minutes, if you will, getting quicker. There's an express train coming up now. And learning to make coffee, there's nowhere better than Melbourne. Oh, the very best. And it's something I've struggled with. Uh, I've made peace with it. Uh, and I will say there's a stunning scene here in Thailand when you we sort of get amongst it. There's, there's some great, great curators of the coffee here. But yeah, Hardware Lane, Flinders Lane, these kind of places is Melbourne. I mean, a flat white, a piccolo. These are pr probably not even Australian, but these are, we claim them. <laughs> but I, I think you have to see it to appreciate it. The whole baby Chino, doggachino, and the oh. whole coffee scene that whole exists family. in Australia. It, it doesn't, even when people describe it to you, you don't really fully take it in it's only when you get into Australia and see the cafes and and people's high attention to detail for the yeah. coffee that you actually understand their passion for it and and the marketability of Melbourne's coffee seat and I don't want to say anything against Sydney I'm, I'm not from Sydney so I'm going to leave Sydney on its own but I, I have there's a coffee shop that opened here in Bangkok called Kaizen and they say we are Melbourne coffee people and you know they're branding people are branding themselves in such a way I mean that's that's magic Gareth that's like you know I mean arguably with I guess from the Italian uh, community that moved to Melbourne you know in the 20s and the 30s you've got a gesture from the Italian sort of coffee style you Lavazza's and everything Lavazza coffee school is there and all the rest of it so Sigafrida whatever so that's that's all there. So I imagine that some of it probably came with that. Uh, but Melbourne is just, I mean, the gastronomic scene's incredible anyway, but the coffee scene is probably what put us on the map. I think it's pretty, pretty fantastic. Excellent. So you graduated from William Anglis and RMIT. Yep. And, and yep. At, at some point post starting to work, you then decided to, to fly 13, 14 hours across the world and, and set up stall in, in the Middle East. So how did the <laughs> Dubai come about? That, that old chestnut. Um, yeah, look, my estranged father was living there uh, working for Dubal. So back at that point, so we're talking 2000 and sort of 2004, um, the aluminum smelters were, were kicking. Everything was great. I mean, you know, Dubai it was all about steel. It was all about aluminium. And, uh, and so he was working at, at Dubal on contract with, the, you know, Australian companies were still being hired. It just, it made me just laugh that we would hire from Australia, ship all that they, all, all Emirates Platinum, all Emirates Gold, looked after, like you've never seen it, moaning about 26,000 dirham a year rent. And I'm just sort of like, yeah, okay, a year uh, back in the day. And so I, I uh, jumped at an opportunity to, um, be a banquets management trainee at Jebel Ali Golf Resort and Spa. So that, this is round one. And uh, so, yeah, dad sort of um, said, we'll give it a crack. And I got my contract and it said a thousand dirhams a month. 
I saw it's surely a thousand dollars, but yeah, go with it. And uh, they said, no, no, a thousand thousand dirhams. And I said, so what, what does that what does that get you? I mean, it's not like Monopoly money, really, isn't it? And they said at HR, well, you know, one or two movies a month, and you know, maybe a couple of dinners. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a train smash. And uh, it wasn't. Best thing I ever did. It it made me grow up and realize what hard work is, because working in banquets in the Middle East is not an easy game. Uh, and Jebel Ali is a top performer in that in that space. So that's right. That was the first round. So got the job, met my wife to be, moved back to Australia to finish my degree. So that was that was all in the same year. Yeah. And well, on to Jebel Ali. So you you actually had three spells with Jebel Ali, yeah. and, and within within the Middle East, and well, especially within Dubai, it, its profile is yeah. is very high because obviously Jebel Ali itself, <clears> one of the very first luxury resorts that opened oasis beach and lots of relatives and friends that used to stay at <laughs> oasis beach because before it was leveled it was came in at a really good price point compared Amazing. to yep. some of the other resorts um so tell us about some of your fondest fondest memories working for jebel ali spells two and three i mean working for david thompson anyway is that's a dream um, his school, his unofficial school of, of hotel management, but he is, he is sales in my head, in my head. He taught me every, he's a gentleman of the game. Uh, and he's, I mean, you know, he's extremely well respected. You say his name to anywhere in Dubai and everyone was our oh, David, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. He's an incredible guy, a mentor. Uh, I would call him family. So um, he'd be one of my big takeaways. I guess the, the great, the greatness of Jebel Ali and the, the ferocity of that company was they were so powerful in Dubai, as you said. So at, when I was with them, look, internationally, not so much. I think Seychelles was coming and they were looking at a few different things like that. I think maybe then Maldives came or whatever, but this was sort of post my time. But in the two times that I were there, the Jebel Ali Golf Resort and Spa, I mean, you were having Tiger Woods down there. We were, you know, we had the beautiful marina was down there. It was kind of like... You know, Hatter Fort was out there as well. So that was sort of, you know, a, a bit of a different game altogether. So you've kind of got these vintage, these vintage kind of hotels that remind me a little bit of like Kellerman's from Dirty Dancing, where you've got this like sort of a, a golf course is there and a bit of a marina and there's there's activities. And, and, and you know, I mean, a few highlights for me. I mean, definitely working around um, the, the big stuff that we did for the catering for the Dubai World Cup. Um, the opening of the Autodrome, these kind of things, Desert Classics, these were these were huge. Uh, but then I think, I mean, it, it was the first time I'd ever done a pharmaceutical function before. I mean, learning about the the world of sort of mice pharma, that was that was for me really interesting, Boehringer, Ingelheim, et cetera, Pfizer. This was very interesting because it, when you enter a hotel world, you don't get everything on day one. It's it's kind of like first time you enter a restaurant, you can't eat the whole menu. You've got to have, you've got to have a little bit of here, a little bit of that. And you sort of go with what you think you're going to love. So I'm like, I love banquets. That's the best thing in my life. Until I did field sales. Like, well, that's the best thing in my life. And then I did leisure sales. Like, that's actually the best thing in my life. So, you know, it moves it moves around. But um, the food and beverage scene that Jebel Ali had at the time, and, and still have, by the way, they've got an incredible food and beverage, very robust uh, and very talented. People have been there for years and years working at those resorts. And it's probably not uh, the complexity of what, what is done, but it's just the good food and I think sometimes a lot of resorts they have 
they they're missing the good food they've got a lot of food but good food is hard so i love their culinary i love their vision hated knocking down a Oasis beach hotel that broke my heart completely because that was the best value for money proposition bar none there was nothing in dubai i mean we would slaughter the competition rgi it wouldn't matter what hotel what five-star hotel it was as a four-star on jamira beach that positioning that foresight to keep it could have been a five-star actually it could have been a five-star but to hold the four-star, you got four-star guests, you got five-star guests, we had mice. Oh. And then I was living at that point in the Oasis Beach Hotel, uh, Oasis Beach Tower, rather, where Freddie was born. Uh, so sort of my whole, that was in sort of round, round three. So you kind of got like, I mean, I left for a blip uh, and joined a DMC. And I realized very quickly, I am not made for the world of DMC. So that 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 very quickly sorted its <laughs> that auto corrected itself and came back to Jebel Ali, which I, I guess they knew I would. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, I mean, yeah, it, the great experience working for David and everything he gave me, uh, learning to meet his wife Deborah, who's still, I believe, the general manager of Hatterford after these years. I've watched all their kids grow up. It's a it's a family working with Nelson Gibb, you know, and Dutco, which is for its time. I mean, the Dutco. Valfabidi group is is still today one of the hugest construction giants across the Middle East. So, I mean, I was working for those guys and being able to travel for them, being able to do business with them. So, yeah, I mean, all great stuff, mate. Did did you overlap with uh, Mohammed and Salah Al Jazeera during their their era at Jebel Ali? Because I didn't no. I, I didn't understand till much later, but. A lot of the influential people at Dubai Commerce Tourism Marketing and yes. start starting Arabian Travel Mart, it, a lot of it could be dotted back to Jebel Ali's roots. Back to them, you have Reda Atala, you had Muhammad Jaziri, obviously Salah, Salah Jaziri was born. I mean, if you go back and talk to um, like uh, um, Maha Kazowitz from XDTCM Germany and these sorts of legacy Dubai tourism, they'll tell you about Salah when he was a boy, like when he was a four-year-old, five-year-old. I mean, that was my hotel. And Salah and I about the same, same age. So, you know, imagine we're growing up obviously a bit parallel universe, but there's these amazing um, pictures of uh, Sheikh Rashid and Abdullah Salah and all of these people basically at the forefront of building that incredible resort. And to be honest, nothing else that's gone down there, in a personal opinion, but like, you know, the Nikhil project and stuff, nothing really went. But Jebel Ali Golf Resort and Spa still continues to just soldier on the shooting club, the, the marina, the golf course. They've got another hotel that's opened out, out the back of it now, I've just seen. So, I mean, it's it's been the lifelong sort of, you know, almost self-serving prophecy for those families, the the, the Salah family um, on one side and the Backer family on the other side. And it's it's just, yeah, for me, just sensational. So I wasn't there at those times, but I did work with Reda Atullah. Sure, uh, he's a great man. Well, just to give a bit of background for listeners, Salah Al Jazeera was heading up uh, Dubai Commerce Tourism Marketing during the, the era where you and I both were going overseas on many international trips back in 2008 to 2012. And he now heads up tourism for Ajman, I believe, which is... A, exactly, a exactly. I mean, he, we've stayed friends for all these years and um, the most him and his lovely wife, Amun, uh, and Eid Mubarak, if, uh, if, they're, if they're listening today. Um, but uh, he gave me my cat, the cat that you see all over my Instagram and, uh, and all over my Facebook, my Savannah, and that was a gift from him. 
uh, which I'm hugely humbled for because she headbutts us every morning. So, um, you know, the broken nose that I'll eventually get from that is, uh, is also part of Salah's doing. But yeah, great man, great family. Excellent. So post Jebel Ali, you joined IHG and after a short stint in uh, Qatar, yeah, to the Indian Ocean. So opening essentially the, the Intercon Mauritius. So, yeah, yeah. So post post Dubai, how was this experience? And if if someone hasn't been to Mauritius, like my good yeah. self, what why why would it need to be on anyone's hit list or uh, bucket list as a reason to visit? Sure. Um, Mauritius is there's a saying in Mauritius. Now I was the only non-French speaking director of sales and marketing on the island. So I, I, I entered with my own set of troubles. So I didn't speak Creole, didn't speak French. Had a French GM who would consistently check in with me and say, you sure you don't speak French? I'd be like, no, Frank, same, same guy, same, same person I was when you interviewed me. Um, but there is a saying that they have, and I'm sure it is in French, but they would always tell me in English, that Mauritius is actually heaven on earth. And it came from Mark Twain. And I really, honestly believe that Mauritius is heaven on earth. There is no place that I've traveled to, and I'm pretty far traveled now from sort of you know, Europe, Africa, Nordics, whatever, Americas, but Mauritius is this, is this island that has this force of, of beauty, uh, rage and beauty uh, sort of combination. Rage, I guess, because of the history of the sort of tumultuous past that a lot of the, you know, Seychelles are a bit the same, Comoros a bit the same, but Mauritius itself has kind of got quite a, quite a volatile history. There's a lot of UNESCO sites there. A lot of work has been done um, with, the, with the Creole people down there, which is, I mean, the most beautiful people in the world, let me tell you. I, I have friends there. I mean, I was there for, for almost two years and the people I met there, the relationships I forged there, just another level of, of honesty, of depth. Um, I didn't open the intercom, but I was the second uh, DOSM there, I think. And Oh, it was tough. I mean, it, it was tough as to work there. To work there was tough as nails. I mean, hurricane season, the heat, the rain. It rains somewhere on the island. It rains every day. Somewhere it's raining all the time. So you could, you, you literally. I mean, we think Melbourne's got four seasons, excluding the snow. Mauritius got four seasons in every hour. So you know, you'd get out. People would just hit the beaches, start raining, back to the room, back out again. Then it's freezing cold. So it was just hilarious to watch it unfold. Um, but the reason people need to go to Mauritius is because actually there's nowhere like it. You cannot find what you see in Mauritius. In Indian Ocean, Gareth, people think Seychelles or Maldives or whatever, or maybe Sri Lanka. But actually, Mauritius has a proper economy in that it's not just tourism related, which is, which is first and foremost. Huge telecoms uh, are based there. A pretty wild food and beverage scene that I, I wasn't ready for. I wasn't ready for the fiery chilies of uh, Rodrigues and, uh, and the Vanilla Isles, which are mind-blowing hot. Now, friend, good friend Peter Pyatt used to carry these uh, piment, used to, chili, used to carry them with him. And everyone's like, what is that that you're putting on everything? That's from Mauritius. Uh, and it's hot. It's hot as hell. I mean, it's, it's as hot as a Lizzo song. I'll be very straight. Um, it, it's terribly hot. So the food's great. The people are wonderful. And the last thing for me is the music. If you've not, you've heard reggae and you've heard what that looks like, or you've heard ska. So you've got Caribbean and you've got what all of that looks like from the music scene, but then the Mauritians give you Sega and Sega music and the heartfelt and the rhythm. I mean, it's, and the color, it, it, I mean, if it's not for the food and it's not, I mean, and it's not for the seafood, 
it's got to be for the great hospitality, the Mauritian hospitality, the people and their dance and the music. I, these, these are the things you've got to go and visit it. There's great connections as well. I think Emirates pretty much sewn up that airport. So you've, you've got multiple flights from all destinations every day via Dubai to get out to Mauritius when it's open. Having a young family, Shane, the move back to Dubai clearly made a lot of sense from a lifestyle perspective. Also an interesting assignment, repositioning a renaissance for a crown plaza. What were some of your focuses and accomplishments and how do you reposition a hotel in Dubai's competitive hotel market? Um, so the Crown Plaza Dira, the Crown Plaza Dubai Dira, as it was called, was a renaissance. So it had already made the conversion and fortunately the renovation had already taken place. So it was a refurb uh, and a, and a rebrand. And so that had taken place already. And then I sort of sw swanned in. So I kind of got it right as it was kind of you know good to go when it was already done, which is great. Um, the difficulty with any hotel in that side is that's what was old Dubai. So while we had the airport free zone and all of that, sort of you've got a very leisure DOSM, a wholesale DOSM, who's you know, talking about half board and all inclusive and all the rest of it, and then move, moved into what is essentially a stock corporate, solid corporate hotel with my with my facilities. And yeah, I mean, on on arrival, I was like, whoa, this is this is a great hotel, but what 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 am, have they picked the right person? You know, have they got the right guy here? Because everything I'd done to that point had been sort of proper leisure. Um, but thanks to Natalie Nasser, uh, who I, I love and adore, um, and, and is a real mentor actually, and she's been my she mentor for me forever. But she she knew that I'd be able to get there, so I sort of moved in. Uh, was competing directly with you know the Marriott, the JW Marriott, the original JW Marriott. I think there's a couple now that are kicking about out there. Uh, and then of course we have you know your Jamira Creek sides, your Festival City Hotel. So you know it's going bigger, bigger, biggest, and we were right at the bottom end. But it was still about finding those clients who loved what we had. You know, Spice Island was an institution. So, I mean, if nothing else, I love to hang out at that buffet and eat those, uh, you know, spider crabs and all the rest of it. But it, it was an institution there. You know, we were able to get a huge following from Dubai's local expat market. So our food and beverage scene was pretty vibrant. We had a great group of friends that worked at the hotel. Great leaders. George was there. And... You know, it was it was working with IHG, but IHG saw, I mean, I, I guess they saw sort of quite quickly that maybe this wasn't exactly my pocket. So they expanded on what I did. So that was when I first came to Bangkok, became a, a master trainer for some IHG different training programs, and then rolled those out. So the new Intercon in uh, the Marina and Abu Dhabi and all the rest of it. So um, I was doing as much for IHG as the hotel, and I sort of I really appreciate IHG for that for giving me those opportunities. And I, I thought at that point I might actually make the uh, the shimmy to the left and uh, and get onto training. But as far as Dubai's competitive scene, um, truth, keep it truthful, keep it very transparent. There's a lot of non-trans, as you well know, a lot of things are not very transparent in Dubai, but I, my, my policy has been the same with every job. And I think that maybe it's the, uh, the Aussie honesty, but it, it's always done me quite well. And we did really well there. I mean, a couple of good RFPs, some good crews, et cetera. Um, I remember landing the uh, the Kenyan Airways crew, which was fantastic and meeting the whole crew at the airport. They were more shocked than I was. Uh, I sort of got there and they weren't expecting to see anyone but their transfer, but I was down there with the, ready to, to greet the, the whole crew. Same with Nigerian Air uh, at the time. So, you know, we you, you, you fight your battles, you know, you, you go in hard and you keep it, Keep it as straight and truthful as you can. All I lost there was a was a, I didn't I didn't have my DMC involvement, you know, my wholesale involvement. 
Um, but it was the first time I'd worked with, you know, wholesalers like GTA and these things, and I guess forged some of those fantastic friendships that I still have today with, uh, with mutual friends that you and I both still know. Fantastic. And, and then it, it doesn't get much better. You were headhunted by Jamira to head up the leisure team. <laughs> initially, <Headhunted>, yeah. <laughs> initially for Madinat, and, and then obviously you're promoted into a bigger role. Um, and your social media at that point obviously was incredibly impressive. Thinking more Thank about the, the Klitschko's rather than Peter Andre. <laughs> <laughs> He's obviously impressive also. Uh, but can can you tell us a little bit about your your career highlights at, at Jamira and and obviously Madinat also? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, headhunted. Linda would Linda would love that uh, love that term. Um, Andy Nightingale, uh, who has since come to Bangkok as well, is now working for mine. I remember he dropped me a Facebook message and he just simply said, "Hi Shane, it's Andy. Would you consider a leisure job with Madinat?" And I was like, because I'm a pretty fast reactor straight and I called his wife and I called him and then I realized I've probably done too much and lost the job but in the end I uh I somehow got the job I don't know how I passed the security and all the rest of it but there is a future for everyone there and I, I'd like to think that I, I got Jamira at a time I mean the straight up the best job the best company I mean I have the most confounded respect for the for Jamira and the Jamira group Oh, Tales of Jamira, goodness me, from sitting next to Mike Tyson in Hamilton in New York to uh, convincing Linda that the Mariah Carey Christmas show was a great option to take clients to, to Jamira Restaurant Week, which is just an excuse for me actually to eat in all of the restaurants I would never usually you know, from Tattoo in Manchester to to taking uh, Spencer Groves at the Lardery in Marble. I mean, th this this was just... It was just the best. This is Kazakhstan going all through the Caucasus. Russia has its own chapter. Um, Sam Smith event, you know, in London. Peter Andre event that I were able to, uh, and my friendship that came with him. And, and he's such a such a great guy. And my lack of understanding about just how famous he is in the UK, because obviously bringing him to the ATM event uh, set set everybody on fire, and then had everybody wanting to get more tickets to next year's ATM event. I mean. Jamira is a class on its own. There is no question. Uh, Alex Lee, Linda Lewis, Andy, my team. One thing I say, Gareth, my takeaway is that the team there were just sensational. I mean, you know, there's a lot that goes into those hotels. They operate at such a high octane. And Madinat Jamira, unequivocally the best hotel complex on the planet. I, th there is nothing that would ever come in front of me. And you know, you know, my best mates on Atlantis, I got friends at one and only and, and you know, Sands and whatever, but nothing, nothing is better than Madinat Jamira Complex. Not, not, not the way it's laid out, not the conference center, not the beach, nothing can come close to, to what it offers. Uh, to what it offers in the luxury space, I think is, is my question. So there's, there's a in, in a, in a bit of a nutshell, there's my gym. And oh, and the, you know, that time I sang with Anastasia was, let's not, uh, let's not forget that, that uh, invitation just for sponsoring, I think the film festival. So left Kate Blanchett at one red carpet event and then into the four seasons, Jamira, the next minute I'm on stage singing with Anastasia and there's Eva Longoria, Melanie Griffith, Andy McDowell. And I, I just, I sort of grabbed my, my goodie bag at the end of that night, like I was at the Academy Awards and I walked out and I just went, probably not going to ever get any better than this. <laughs> probably not going to get better than this. Your your suits and your dress sense improved remarkably over those two. Sure. 
Oh yes, I found a tailor. Thank you for noticing. Yeah. Nice shoes and better cut yeah. suits than the, the, the baggy ones that you used to wear at IMAX. Do you, do you remember? Yeah, I mean, there was those sales at Pierre Cardin, the, the only store in the world that's constantly on sale in Dubai in uh, their extra large men's uh, section. I, I found, I went to Jamira, found a tailor and, uh, and, and met Ted Baker. So you know, we, got, we got better in the end. The, then the Burj Al Arab, the world's most luxurious hotel and officially seven star. What does Dubai's iconic property mean to you? And what are some of the stories that encapsulate and do justice the time you spent there? The Burj the Al Arab is, that, that is quintessential Dubai. I mean, that is luxury Dubai. There isn't, there isn't anything like that. So it's over the top, it's, it's opulence, um, and there are palaces everywhere, but then there's sort of Burj on the next level. Working, uh, firstly, I never thought they'd let me through the front door because back when I, back when I was in, uh, in Dubai, uh, the first couple of times, I couldn't get through the security. So then when I actually, I actually had the security uh, clearance to sort of, I had the sticker on my car and I'd roll over that and I'd be like, you know, mum, I'm, I'm on the Burj, you know, I'm at the Burj and, I, and I'm allowed and I'm not going to be kicked out. I don't have to even buy a coffee just to stay here. I, I mean... Um, the Burj is incredible. It was it was both the most beautiful and one of the hardest products because it's not for everybody. Uh, so it's it's one of those things. It's not for everyone. But incredible general managers over the years. I mean, I was lucky enough to work for two different ones. Obviously, Margaret Paul, who is uh, now at Panpac in Singapore, just one of the most incredible female leaders on the planet. And would work for her in a heartbeat. And Tony Costa uh, during his time at Jamira, uh, who is now at uh, Caesar Blue Waters. Uh, both of them incredibly strong characters and they and no luxury like just they just they just get it and so many my, my, my happiest moment or my relevant moments uh Virge, I remember was sitting with Kuljinder Singh uh, from South Hall Travel and we're sitting on the terrace which opened while I was there by the way so that was a that was an addition to the Burj. I've got a, a mark there somehow and uh and he's like I've got someone I want you to meet got someone to meet and then so I, I shared a bowl of chips and a cup of coffee with MS Dhoni uh, sitting on the terrace of the Burj in my suit, so sort of Hermes as much as I can stuff in one pocket square and a tie. And there's Donnie and I having a bowl of chips. And I, I got a photo from Mum. I'm like, Mum, this is, this is maybe one of the, maybe the best cricket player to ever grace, ever grace a pitch. To be honest with you, a batsman, all rounder, captain, India's ever seen for sure. And uh, and here here I am sharing a bowl of chips with him on the Burj. So you know, though, but those stories became. They became anecdotes on almost a daily basis because it didn't matter where you were in Birch, there was someone there. There was somebody at all times. I mean, so many people I wouldn't mention, but the, the famous, uh, you know, I saw two, two blonde-haired boys with pink shorts walking out from the car park, and I was late for a revenue meeting, always late for a revenue meeting, threw the car in, didn't really park it properly, and he starts talking, I'm talking, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, yeah. It was Justin Bieber. And I had, I mean, it's like Shane with your life of music and your thing how how you didn't see that I knew he was there but I just didn't I was just not focused because this would happen all the time and he was a gentleman as well he was such a pleasure to have he's such a great guy we'd have broken the ice or the tension of a revenue meeting with a <laughs> I was so I went upstairs and I said, I've just been with Justin and I was like okay and how is the forecast looking for Mars? you know like <laughs> Al Nassim your time at Jumeirah also provided an incredible opportunity to go to market with a fourth resort for Madinat. 
tell us a little bit about how Jumeirah did that. And also if you could share the backstory behind finding the land and the space for this resort addition. Well, uh, yeah, it was a shocker for me as well, because again, on signing up on the Madanat job, Andy's like, you know, we'll be opening Jumeirah on the scene. And we, there was for quite a long time this hoarding up there. But before that, and I sort of had to put my memory back because I'd seen as a guest, the opening of Mina Salam in you know, 2004. And you're right, next to it, there was like a bit of a public beach. So you could like, the people used to walk their dogs. It was a dog walking beach. There was a couple of old villas there, some old Emirati villas sort of right. Jamira was quite famous at the time, not Jamira, the company, Jamira, the, the area for having these old shaky kind of, you know, places along the, along the beach. And there just happened to be one between Burj Al Arab and, and Mina Salam. So then this, this sort of beautiful white, didn't look anything like the rest of them, but kind of looked like what they would be if they'd all gone at the same time. Alnus seemed open, and I remember its opening day because uh, Andy was out of the country, Linda was out, Alex was out. It was Margaret and I, and I must have, I, I, don't, I don't know how many royals. Uh, I mean, me, I mean, I'm thinking the boy from Geelong who was Hudson's coffee, who, you, you know, a bit of bit of bit of the not bad boy, but the the rock and roller of the of that world. They're bringing VIPs through, and there were so many Mercedes that day. I thought the whole place was branded by Mercedes. So many G wagons, and uh, and there was Margaret and I, and she completely poised as always because she was the she was the general manager of the whole Madinat complex at that time, and uh, and then we took we took Al Nassim on the road. I mean, we God man, we went everywhere. It was straight into virtuoso. I mean, that was amazing. So that was to take Al Nassim to. I mean, that's the big time, you know. For, for, Dubai is maybe not a, uh, a virtuoso, um, it's not like Rome or Venice is for virtuoso or it's like some of those places. It's Middle East, it's a bit different. It's quite, you have to really cultivate those experiences. It's expensive as well. So, but then when Al Nassim opened and, and Jose Silva was there not long after and, you know, we were virtuoso, we were fine hotels. So all of a sudden these people were calling and they're, and they're looking at the rooms like Bill Bensley, like, oh my God, you know, it's, it's the first, Jamira's first foray into a Bill Bensley uh, sort of, he'd done a lot of the landscaping and I, and I since got to meet Bill, he lives here in Bangkok, so full circle. And he's on uh, another product uh, that I, I'm working on for IHG now. But so it, it was just about getting those stories out. It had incredible brand and marketing. Sandra Ferreira at the time, uh, she was working on the project specifically. And we had some of the best PR and comms, Evan Shadi, uh, Mozami, you know, these guys just nailed it, you know, nailed the the, the positioning. And and I never dreamed, I, uh, to be honest with you, Gareth, I, I mean, I knew El Casa and I knew everything El Casa was because that was the luxury palace. That was the palace, El Casa, the palace. Uh, Mina Asalam for me, still the lobby is still so jaw dropping. And then I walked into Al Nassim and I just went, oh my gosh, I mean, how, who, what will we do with this? I mean, at every point in the resort, you feel like you're sitting on the beach and in your room, it's built in such a way. It's huge. It's the biggest single entity in Madanat Jamira. Um, but actually it feels like the coziest because it's completely arced around and just great rock fish, Bill Bensley restaurant design, look and feel just so wow, 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 wow. And I mean, I have to be honest, mate, the we, we could have two of them and we would have filled them time after time. Everybody loved, I haven't met, <clears throat> I haven't met a person who didn't love Jamira al -Nassim. They may have come in and said, we love, we've stayed in Alcacer or we've stayed in Daromasia and we've done that or we love Jamira Beach Hotel. That was always a bit awkward because they're completely different things. But 
But when they got to Al Nassim and they spent a night, just because of the room layout and how big they were and how luxe it was, but so understated luxe, so so gentle, nothing abrasive about its luxury. And I think that's why it worked. That's that's the message. That's the message I used to take, and it it really is the most outstanding most outstanding product. Um, and then Bangkok, we we met uh, in um, Bali in Bali. <laughs> Good couple of years ago now, but you, you at that time you had already been approached a couple of times about potential roles in different Asian cities. I won't mention yeah. what they are, but but Bangkok had come up a couple of times, and it was probably sure. about six to twelve months after that, that that you did make the move to Bangkok, and and you'd been reacquainted with IHG. So can you talk about you know how that came about, and then more impressively how. You, you obviously positioned and opened the first Kimpton for HG in Southeast Asia against yeah. what well, couldn't have been a tight, tougher backdrop, but, but from, <laughs> from the bonnets yeah. and the press and everything else, it, it couldn't have been a more successful opening. Thank you. Um, look, the, the Bangkok move, it's, it's no surprise uh, to people who know me that with Helen being you know, Chinese, I wanted to get, and mum being in, in Melbourne, I wanted to get a bit closer. I just wanted to be a bit closer. There was nothing I didn't love about Dubai. That, that's, I think, you know, if you're going to move, that's got to be the time. If you're at a point where you still love everything you're doing and you, you don't have any resentment and you, that's the best time to leave, you know, leave on, leave on top. Don't leave when it gets hard. And uh, Emily Foster, who, um, when I just left IHG in Dubai, she'd moved across as director of commercial for that region. And uh, I remember I just, I saw the Kimpton, I saw the Kimpton takeover. I saw, I saw the, well, the, the takeover, sorry, rephrase, the acquisition of the merger IHG and Kimpton became one. And uh, I did say to her at the time, I said, you know, if, uh, if that ever opens or something ever happens with Kimpton in Dubai, you've got to give me a call. I said, because I love that brand. I love what Bill Kimpton stood for and equality and, you know, the, the, the Kimpton stories. We don't even have enough time for that. But it, it's, it's very much ingrained in what I believe and what my belief system is. Um, and then so I saw the press release for Bangkok. So I said, hey, Em, didn't see a referral for this job, <laughs> you know, because yeah, I love, love Em Foster pieces. Um, and uh, she said, would you consider it straight away? And I said, uh, yes. She's like, you sure you consider it? Because you know, you I've been you've taken me out to dinner at Jamira. I know how much you love Jamira. And I said, yes, 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 yes. Never thinking actually, Gareth, that it would go, you know, any I'd heard all of this, oh, you know, expats not coming to Asia anymore, and it's not working, it's hard, and it's, it gets expensive, and you've got kids and they're looking for single, and all, all of the reasons why people tell you not you're not coming to Asia. And so I started my interview process with Charles pretty quickly. Then I met Patrick, who I love and adore, um, and who's just such a great, great general manager, just pure class uh, and very marketable. That's a, that's a different interview. Um, and, and I started going through the interviews with IHG, and I, I remembered how I enjoyed the familiarity of it with the Kimpton Touch. So... And I sort of thought, well, how, will I, how am I going to push the boundaries of this here? Because, you know, Jamira's let me be me, and I may have been... I may have been, maybe that hasn't always been the Jamira way. They've, they've always had quite a way about them. And you know that you live there and you've lived through different people working for that company. But I love with me that Linda, Alex, Andy, they let me do it my way. And I do have a way, for better or for worse, I have, I have a way of doing things, very personable, very involved and, you know, like that. So, but then I knew that Kimpton was supposed to embrace people. So anyway, long story short, um, after multiple sort of interviews and the next minute there was a contract and I... 
said, oh, okay. So I, uh, I spoke to my wife and she's like, well, we, we're going to do this because this is, we're going to like leave Dubai. Like we, we're looking to buy a house, but you know, we're going to leave Dubai. I said, you know, let's just, let's just run with it. Let's just see. I mean, it's Bangkok. And honestly, Gareth, I mean, this city, and I know that, you know, we'd spoken about Singapore before and I, and I do think there are things I'd love about Singapore. I really do. Uh, outside the airport, which is the only thing I've seen, but there is a rhythm to Bangkok. When they call it the city of angels, it's both true and tongue in cheek because it's got everything here. The vibrance, uh, it's playful, it's gritty, it's, it's very aristocratic. Um, it's big, it's massive, you know, it's a concrete jungle, but there's beauty behind every corner. And uh, then I got the chance to open this incredible Kimpton and, and that, that is redefining the way Kimpton's done. So, you know, we have had an incredible team around me, great PR and comms and an incredible sales team. I'm, uh, I was always on the lookout to have some gents join the team, but like most sales teams in Thailand, most commercial teams, all women. So they definitely keep me uh, on my toes and keep me in check. They're quite fierce. And, uh, but they, the, these results are theirs, mate. They're not mine. I mean, I've been there to help them and sort of, you know, steer, steer a little bit the way, but all the sales effort and the, that's come from them. I mean, that's my director of sales is just an incredible woman. And the marketing team, and we, we balanced, and because it's a localized market, we balanced the sort of influencer side extremely well, the KOLs, the influencers, uh, which is probably very prominent uh, here in a localized market right now. But on an international stage, the exciting time comes when we're starting to now already get the inquiries and people are hearing about it. We opened a day before Shinjuku Tokyo, which was the other Kimpton at the time. We got Bali. I helped with the team that signed Samui. So Kimpton is coming, you know, coming to Singapore. We're going to be in Hong Kong. Like it's, it's on the way in this brand that loves people. So I don't think there's ever been quite a brand that loves its, its people. But Kimpton loves Kimpton people. They love... I love to let them. So while I'm a bit rough around the edges and I've had to, you know, I've had people at times say, oh, you're a bit of a rough diamond, Shane, or, you know, you need to be smoothed out. Like, okay, thanks. Thanks for that. And obviously I've taken everyone's uh, feedback on that front, but Kimpton allows me to do it my way. And in the natural process of doing it my way, I've matured and I've grown up and I've been able to do this. And then, yeah, at the end of last year, after opening this stunning hotel in COVID, <laughs> right in the middle of COVID, uh, and to huge acclaim, actually. I mean, the, God, there's uh, we had, you know, Ron Gluckman doing a story uh, on us for Asia Nikkei, and I was like, oh, my God, like, this, these people really want to write about us. You know, they really want to... This is not paid media. This is this is proper... This is the editorial you want. This is this is what people sort of salivate after, and uh, and we're getting it because, because of Patrick, because of IHG, because this new sort of this new advancement in the way that we look after the guests and the Kimpton way that the US has known for so many years is now in London, it's in Amsterdam, opening in Paris, it's in Barcelona, you know, we're, we're bringing it now. Clearly it's been a real honour to, to have uh, been selected to open Southeast Asia's first Kimpton and you, you've elaborated there that you actually were, were looking for that position. It, so in a, in a way it's a bit yeah. of a, a dream come true for you, but what yeah. are some of the successes and milestones that that have happened during COVID that make you most proud of the opening? Uh, I'm most proud of Kimpton, I think, because we, we stood on our own two feet pretty quickly. So we opened uh, our first residence checked in July. The hotel itself opened in October. 
But with no uh, international borders open, with Kimpton being an unknown brand, I think being able to convince the market to get, not based on price, nothing to do with that, being able to convince them that this luxury lifestyle proposition was here in Bangkok because it's not everywhere. Like we had an addition uh, coming in and unfortunately didn't come here. Um, there's a few other lifestyle propositions, the Soso Hotel, et cetera. But in the design-led luxury lux, there isn't a lot actually that plays in that field here. Um, and so to convince the sort of local market and the local expatriate market that we, we can do this and we can bring this brand they may have heard about from the States, we can bring it to life here with its wine hour, the social hour and its morning kickstart and its pet programming. I mean, that was quite controversial to say the least, but I mean, you, you've seen the social media going out of control. We've become the paradise for the Lux pets, more Louis Vuitton on the pets than there is on the arms these days. And uh, which is an amazing, uh, amazing thing to watch. Um, but on the backside of that, I think, you know, the opportunity to work for such a company, you know, IHG and the collaboration with Sam Sinthorn, uh, I'm so proud, Gareth, to, to see that we've we've actualized that, that idea, that dream of bringing this brand. And, you know, our owners are so incredible. They've got the, the, the village, the Sinthorn village they've created. It's its own green lungs. So, while Bangkok is surrounded, I had friends call me yesterday and said, we're just walking past your place. You can breathe these. You've got trees everywhere. Like you're like, you, you can't even see the buildings around the trees. And I said, yeah, that's me every day. That's my, that's my, there's a running track. That, that's my daily existence, Gareth. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we opened all the food and beverage first. Um, so we've got open craft, which is, you know, your coffee and brews. We've got bar yard, which is our rooftop barbecue look every Australian needs a rooftop barbecue and uh, and then Miss Duke came later but to open those without a hotel and make them successful that's incredible for me like I've never that's backwards usually you get 100 or so rooms open you might open your all-day dining we're none of that we open the coffee shop which then but is, is is the lobby the lobby and the coffee shop are one we then open the rooftop so sort of the top and the bottom a uh, bit of banquets that opened as well. No rooms yet. No, no rooms on the plate. And then in October we opened the rooms. So, I mean, where's where's the success? Doing it backwards and coming out on top. I think that's probably the. <laughs> well, I can think of uh, scores and scores of hotels that opened without any any outlets and uh, yes. they really, really struggled to get anyone to stay there because they had very little to offer in the way of drinking or dining. So no, it's a, it's an interesting way around, but. That, that appealing to the local market has been clear in everything I've read and seen. So uh, chapeau nice, to you, you, Patrick, and, and uh, the, the whole team. Shane, the last number of years have seen the rise of the influencer. You'll have seen a lot of requests, particularly in Dubai and Bangkok. How do you approach this new uh, phenomena? And what would you recommend a usable and practical heuristic or framework when deciding whether or not to host or compass day? Uh, look, I think uh, it's actually pretty clear cut uh, the way I look at it and the way that my team looks at it. Um, KOL's a dime a dozen. They're, they're, I mean, I'm, I'm one, you're one, depending. I mean, maybe I'm one for Adidas. I, I preach about it. Maybe you're, you know, you're one for Emirates. Someone watches this or listens to this and sees us both and says, well, maybe they've got beard products. You, you know, it, it's, it could be for anything. We can all be part of it. It really comes down to what your hotel stands for. So, for example, uh, we're a pet-friendly hotel. A lot of our influencers, maybe they only had 4,000, maybe they only had 10,000 followers, but they're 10,000 followers of people who love that breed of dog or that cat or that rabbit or that. So that 
in that niche tiny pocket we're not looking for the 30 it's relevance we're not looking for the 30 million followers we're looking for the people who are relevant and that's that's bangkok so if you've got if you do have 10,000 people in bangkok well i don't have enough seats in my restaurants for all your friends anyway do you know what i mean so that's that's a great capture of, of people that are following when it comes to the big stuff, uh, and someone asked me the other day, you know, travel editors or, or influencers, you've got to make way for both. In the luxury space we play in, you, you know, you still want to see big time editors, Rob Report, you still want to see uh, you know, CNN, you still want to see these kind of people, um, travel and leisure, we're lucky to have Janine based here. You know, that they're formidable publications. There's, there is just no question about their worth or their weight. So if people say that magazines and editors are out the window, that, that's also rubbish. That's not that's not true altogether. That luxury space and their following will always be there. It will evolve, but that will always be there. But so long as the KOL identifies with what you stand for, and they've got an appropriate following, you know, that just looks good, doesn't, doesn't really equate to much. That's very helpful, Shane. Thank you very much indeed. And another passion, which is obviously resonated for you talk about coffee and, and some of the restaurants that you've enjoyed. So you, you're obviously very passionate about it. What's your view of food and beverage in a, in a hotel and resort? I wish people took it more seriously. I wish that hotels took as much notice of their food and beverage or restaurants and bars we call R&B in, uh, in Kimpton. I, it's, the it's the first company I've worked for where it's 50-50, mm -hmm. rooms and R&B. You'd be hard pressed to find another company that works like that in the world of hotels. And that's problematic. You might get one big hit restaurant, you know, 10 seat Michelin star or something that you'll pay an extortionate amount of money to have and to host and to be, but that's probably not going to gravitate people into your hotel. That's probably not going to, that sort of a restaurant would probably not give you hotel incremental business. But if you've got solid food and beverage foundation, that, that echoes and resonates all through the, all through the rooms as well. So Kimpton is 50-50. It's called Kimpton Restaurants and Hotels. That's, that's Hotels and Restaurants. That's, that's the name of the company. So it's 50-50. And if you go to any of the hotels around the world, the emphasis on what they do in food and beverage and the programming, the customer journey, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's the, from the designing of amenities to the personalization of dishes to no buffets. And if there's a buffet, it's assisted buffet and, and all of these sorts of things. And, New concepts. We've got a grocer on opening. You know, Jones the grocer meets eat Thai meets this and this, and then live cooking and street artisan. I mean, so it's not a buffet. It's it's definitely not an a la carte, but it's it, it's you know redefining food and beverage. I just wish more hotels would take it take it more seriously. And that's where someone like I mean, I use like the great Emma Banks, you know, who I think has moved over to to the Hilton Culinary or the Hilton Global. I mean, what a visionary, Elena Broms. Uh, from IHG uh, previously has uh, just just left uh, her post. But these women saw food and beverage not as an ancillary revenue. They saw it as their revenue. And I think that's where the mindset needs to change. If you see it always as an extra, just an add-on, like a breakfast, well, there always will be. Mm -hmm. So if you take it seriously, it will become of paramount importance. And then you start hiring people who really live that. And that's the difference, I think. And I think... It Given that you've worked in Dubai and, and Bangkok, you've, you've also worked in hotels where F&B is fully part of the proposition, right? You're, people yeah. are selecting the resorts or the hotels because of it. Whereas if, you, if you've come up in a London, Berlin or whatever, and you've got one or two restaurants only, you, you probably wouldn't have such an oversized impression of 
the importance sure. of the brunch, the importance of having Agreed. a good bar and, and the importance of the coffee, the barrister and the, yep. the mixologist and, and everything else. You're so right. Uh, because in London and Berlin, Gareth, standalones always win. Yeah. In Bangkok, my restaurants also win. So that's not normal. That's not a normal... In Jamiro, they won. But they were, they were in a different price point. But it's funny that you go to London and like I use the lottery, for example, like that as a breakfast horn, fantastic. Love it. Just love that place. But I would never take someone to breakfast in one of the hotels there. Not because it's not great. Not because we're probably because 40 quid for breakfast each. And I'm like going, how am I going to put that expense claim through? You know what I mean? So I, I think, you know, that's where you, you want to kind of fight on that level, mate. You want to be able to go punch for punch with standalones. And I, we are at Kimpton geared up as standalone restaurant. You know, our, our hotel opened in Koh Samui and it's, you know, it's, I won't divulge too much, but one of the longest conversations I had with the owners was how inspired he was by coffee and how he knew that Koh Samui didn't have a great coffee scene. So now I've got this incredible vision of when that hotel opens later this year, that you're going to have good coffee in Koh Samui for once. I mean, that's, the residents of Kosamui will come to that Kimpton for coffee because that's what Kimptons do, you know? So yeah, I take it very seriously. And I, I wish, I wish other people, I wish other hotels did. Yeah. Well, Bali certainly has a, a great coffee scene. And that, again, I'd say that's probably because of all the Aussies that have been going there. for <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you've got down there in Changu now, Semenyak. I mean, we went to a Starbucks, you and I, that was a bit off, off, off uh, cast, but that's all right. Um, but yeah, no, no, absolutely. Bali's got a great scene. And now Kim Denaire's going to have a great coffee scene as well. I know Demi's in there, so she's going to do a great job with that, sure. In, in terms of Thailand, so if you put aside Samui, Phuket, some of the, the well-traveled well and famous resorts, you, you've obviously spent a little time now touring the country. How long should someone vacation for in Thailand? And, and what are some of the places a little off the beaten track worthy of a global traveler? Sure. Um, just in one sentence, Thailand is really unrivaled beauty. Uh, if you're coming to Thailand, give it three weeks. It's, it's a cost-effective destination where you can do three weeks. So if you've got the time or you can put, you know, whack on a few, few public holidays or whatever and get yourself three weeks, do three weeks. Uh, and I would, I would come into Bangkok initially because it's great to do it. And I think, you know, some time in Bangkok is, is absolutely necessary. You really need to get that sorted. Uh, off the beaten track places, you... The north of the country, the sort of that golden triangle, sort of Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, uh, Pai, sort of um, Nan province, this, this area, this is stunning, mate. This is, this is mountains that give you Canada meets South Africa meets the rolling plains of, and a coffee plantation pops up in the middle of it, hill tribes. There's nothing like it. There's no, nothing like it, not in the safety of, of that um, in, in that relevant, so whether it's families or whether it's a couples or, or even the, the, the global nomads, Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai are stunning. And it's absolutely worth to stand on the tip and see Lao, um, Myanmar and be based in Thailand and see that at the Golden Triangle. You've, I'm sure you've done it, but it's that's an incredible experience. And for people who love bike riding and stuff, and so the, that, that's the North, it's, it's just beautiful. I always recommend people go to Kachanaburi. Kachanaburi is four hours west of, uh, of Bangkok. And again, the most incredible scenery of, of pines and, and forests and waterfalls <clears throat> that people just don't um, people just don't give it a, give it a thought. It's extremely important uh, from history, from your country, from my country, because it's where the bridge over the River Kwai uh, it was set. And so for for me, 
to go to the Hellfire Pass and to be part of that from a historical perspective, I guess in ways it emulates what Gallipoli does for Australians. It, it emulates what different areas do for different people. And while I'm not a, uh, a traveler of, of doom and gloom, I try and find the positive, there is something very um, heartfelt to go and sort of visit those places that were so prominent through, um, through Southeast Asia's history, which actually a lot of people don't know about. They don't know it's even there to go and visit it. The islands have been done to death, mate. And I think, you know, yeah, they're all beautiful. Phuket's technically not an island, but, you know, Phuket's there. You've got Samuian and, uh, and Koh Phangan, sure. I, I always recommend Koh Chang. Koh Chang is for me what Koh Samui probably would have looked, if anyone hears this who's very familiar, they're probably like, that's not true. I think it's true. <laughs> it's what Koh Samui looked like probably about 50 years ago. It's completely national park. There is only about 10% of the island that is not national park. King Cobras, they got every, everything going on there. It's just smashing seven waterfalls, um, trekkers. They've got for adults, they've got a couple of kids ones. It's just, it's just sensational. Um, they, they'd be my three. I mean, uh, you know, uh, if you're here a bit longer, so in that three weeks, I think the mountains of Khao Yai are beautiful, uh, which is sort of an hour and a half north of, um, uh, 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 and very uh, aristocratic Thailand as well. A lot of big family homes are up there. It's kind of like the Hamptons. It's to the Hamptons what it is to New York is what it is to Bangkok, Khao Yai. That, that's great. And uh, you've thrown up a lot of destinations there that, that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have heard of. I've heard of Khao Yai because of a run, but I haven't heard of um, <laughs> a, a lot of the others. And, and I think uh, people rush to Southeast Asia and do a 10 night tour or 40 night tour. I think uh, the way to go is certainly more no bill bryson try and give yourself as much time as possible and see as many yeah. places because uh it's a rich tapestry and different destinations so thank you for that so you're now leading the commercial effort for ihg for thailand so th this role oversees a huge number of professionals across the kingdom yep. at the end of your assignment which I'm, I'm sure is a long way off at this moment in time but what's your vision and what legacy would you like to leave behind for the team and people that work for you? I mean, here in Thailand, I'd like to Gareth stays as long as I can, you know, I, as long as they'll have me at the end, got to be respectful. It's not my country. So as long as the people will have me, my legacy here is just to be known as somebody who, who was respected by the Thai community, to be very honest. I mean, that in itself is a, <laughs> that's a legacy because you know, it's not the easiest of nuts to crack. Uh, you, you live in Southeast Asia as well. It's, we, we get taught when we're not in Asia, what, you know, what you have to do when you get to Asia. And I, I am invested in, in learning all of those things, but you can't really learn it until you get here because when you get here is when that learning really starts. You can read all the books. You can read about how to manage in Japan and how to manage in China and Singapore and everywhere else, but, you know, and Thailand. But once you physically get here, if you can really earn the respect and you can be remembered as someone who made a difference, then I think that's the legacy I want to live. For IHG, I'd just love to be known as someone who was behind some of these incredible hotels. You know, I've got, I've got holiday inns here that I look after that are more than world-class. They're like holiday inns nobody's ever seen before. Um, you know, it, 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 it just humbles me that I've been given such an opportunity with IHG because I haven't been here too long. I've been around, but I haven't been in Thailand too long. So with the amazing teams I have on property and the talent that I have, I'd also hope to be known as someone who grew people. I mean, you yourself must also judge people, judge yourself now by how many Dossums you've produced, how many you know sales directors you've produced and how many whatever, and then how many of those have now produced it. Because 
you know, you play a chapter in their life and a chapter in their legacy. Um, Aisha is really good on its, its HR and its talent, I mean, as Hilton's as Maria, but I love, you know, just before I got on a call with you, when I'm having job chats and we, we do two month chats and we do PDPs and the rest of it, it's great just to see how the growth is taking place with my team. Uh, and may that long continue, you know, there's, um, there's so much reward in being remembered for, for being a guy like that. Yeah, I think so. and just being a good guy. <laughs> I don't mind such a simple thing. I'd rather be remembered as a good guy than a bad guy. Then I don't, don't want to be that. Very good. Uh, just a few quick fire questions to close, if that's okay, Shane. So, sure, mate. Post COVID, you've talked about the many great destinations in Thailand, but you, you and your, your lovely family are going to be going overseas. So, where, where would you most like to go when, when things are open up? Quick fire answer Vietnam. And I, because I'm sick of not understanding what a proper ban me is or ban me, I'd have probably said it wrong. So I definitely want to get to Saigon and get one of those. Uh, so that's the food I'd eat. I want to stay, um, and I want to stay in Canto at Leanne's new Azurai Hotel. So that's my, uh, that's my, that's my dream. That's, that's sort of like what, what it looks like and what actually happened. That's what it looks like at the moment. What will actually happen is I'm probably going to go back to Melbourne and, uh, and see mum and the family. It's been a long time. If I have the ultimate opportunity to get on a plane first for business, I'm hoping it's Los Angeles. And I'm hoping I'm taking Mickey Wilde to dinner at Gracias Madre in, uh, in West Hollywood. There you go. Very good. Fantastic. And uh, Azurai, if, if anyone's not aware, is the, the new luxury brand of Adrian Zecker, who obviously famous for starting Aman, but but also uh, the Regent in Hong Kong and many other many other luxury hotels. Bangkok is one of the world's best dining scene. Where, where's your favorite Bangkok Saturday night spot and why? Saturday night spot, Tropic City is the for me the greatest bar. I love it. They've got tater tots or potato gems for the Australians who are listening to this. They've got cocktails named after Freddie Mercury and Madonna. It's 80s, it's tacky. It's just been voted one of the top 50 bars in Asia. So it's pretty, pretty damn hot. Uh, I love it, love the music, love everything about it. Uh, so there's my, and to eat, I'll take it away from Thai because all Thai food's good and I can eat Thai food off the side of the road anywhere, it doesn't matter. There's a place called the Smoking Pug. Now, when I was in Dubai, I never had much brisket or anything. I don't know why, I just never, never got into it. But here, just down the road from me, there's a place, Dan and Dana, they own this place, two Americans own a place called the Smoking Pug. And I think they've got just the, I shouldn't say, but the best, best fried chicken sandwich, I think, in Bangkok by a long shot. So I'd be heading down to the Smoking Pug, but I can kind of do that anyway. But that's a great, that's a great spot. And for Thai food, I'll give one shout out to uh, the Super Niga Eating Room uh, group. I think they do the best all round, a Michelin plate. They're fantastic Thai restaurants. Uh, and there's a couple of different outlets of those along with, sorry, last one, Soul Food Mahana Corn, another great Thai restaurant. Yep. And then is it possible to tell it, give us a bit of an insight into how you bookmark your day or um, your morning rituals and how you spent the first 60 minutes of your day? Straight up to the coffee grinder. I grind all my own beans. I don't trust anyone with my beans, mate. Uh, so I'm grinding, it's usually a light roast at the beginning of the day, heavier throughout the, throughout the day. That's probably the opposite of most people. Uh, I've always got uh, my, my feeds. I always want to see what's happening. Twitter's a good one here in Southeast Asia. Uh, and I use it to sort of check it all out. Uh, China, uh, South China Post, what's happening and seeing what's happening here in Bangkok. And then, of course, 
uh, I flip over and see what's happening across the world. So I do like to be up to speed with what's happening. There is a lot of media noise right now. So I'm not definitely not spoiled for choice. And I get onto my socials. I love seeing, uh, love seeing what's happened because, you know, we live in different, we live in different zones, right? So what I've, if I've made a post on a, an evening, it's a morning somewhere, how's that gravitated? What's happening? I do my LinkedIn scans. I, I've got a clubhouse that I'm on every week. Um, so I, I sort of want to make sure I've got all my all the, the stuff I need for Jeanette Linfoot for that. So yeah, that's my morning, mate. Shane, it's been a delightful. Thank you so much for the, Thank the you, great, mate. great discussion about everything that you've uh, achieved and will go on. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a remarkable story and, and career from, from your days in uh, Geelong to Melbourne to Dubai and now obviously in Bangkok. Is there any chance you can give us uh, a one-minute acapella, acapella song that we can uh, include, <laughs> include for the, the kind people that have given up 65, 70 minutes to listen and, uh, and understand why you're known as Showtune in the industry? Oh my goodness! Uh, oh my god! Well, what's your, uh, wasn't wasn't ready for this one? Didn't didn't see that. What's your request then, Gareth? As, as he has a bottle of water. What's a, what's a request from your side, mate? Well, I've I've seen you perform clearly in uh, in different karaoke bars in uh, in German cities and Dubai. But the last time I saw you, you had a residency at the Rosewood. So it's obviously. Gone, gone up market a fair degree. So. <laughs> and I ain't got nothing to say. I check my look in the mirror. I go to bed feeling the same way. Ain't nothing but tired. And I'm just tired and bone myself. Baby, baby, I could use just a little help. You can't start a fire. You can't start a fire without a spark. This gun's for hire, even if we're just dancing in the dark. That's all I got today, mate. That's all I got. <laughs> the boss. The boss. <laughs> Go to Thanks ever so much. Really most appreciated. Ah, uh, mate, you're a legend. Thanks, Gareth. All the best. Love to the family, mate.